Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Coop Cast. This is Andy Jones Wilkins uh, sitting in for Jason Coop. Uh, longtime listeners know that Coop is taking a little bit of a break from the Coop Cast, working on uh, a project, and he's handed over the controls of the Coop Cast to Stephanie Howe which is probably a smart move on his part, and me, which is probably a less smart move on his part. Uh, if you have not yet had a chance to listen to any of Stephanie's uh, podcasts, I encourage you to go back and listen to her recent re- interview with Jesse Diggins, the uh, three-time United States Olympian, cross-country skier, gold medalist. I was I was totally fanboying on that podcast when Stephanie had Jesse on. I remember meeting Jesse when she was 17 years old at a cross-country ski race in Sun Valley, Idaho, when I lived there. And it's just a fantastic interview. So put it on your podcast list to listen to Stephanie's interview with uh, with Jesse Diggins. It's a couple episodes ago on the Coopcast. Um, today is part two of what it's like to be coached by Coop. Uh, it's something that I've uh, chosen to be part of my um, my opportunity to grab the handle, grab the controls of the Coopcast. And today's guest is a really, really good friend of mine. Um, it's hard for me to believe that it's almost been 10 years since I first met him. It was February of 2013 high on the bluffs above Malibu, California. I had headed west uh, to escape the East Coast cold uh, to run the Ray Miller 50 mile, uh, 50 miler, a great race that is no more. It's become the Sean O'Brien, uh, but it's up in the um, in the bluffs above Malibu, California. The Ray Miller 50 was a fantastic stop on the ultra calendar. And in 2013, my guest, who had already had some successful uh, ultra runs that we'll talk a little bit about, uh, did battle with uh, two Western States champions at the time. Hal Kerner had won the race twice, and Timothy Olson had won the race once and was on his way to winning the race twice. And Dylan Bowman, today's guest, beat them both. And while it may be a small footnote in his long career at this point, it was a highlight of mine. And it's with great pleasure that I welcome Dylan to the Coopcast. AJ W, I can't believe almost 10 years, man. And yeah, thanks for the reminder that uh, I was able to beat those guys at the B tier races, never secure a Cougar trophy and win one of those A tier uh, races like Westerns myself. But yeah, it was, I recall that day you telling me that you ate like 20 salt pills or something at the Ray Miller 50 miler in 2013. So fun memory. Do, do you, do you remember that race? I do. I remember it well. Yeah. I mean, I was on the uh, upswing in my career. And of course, I viewed people like Timothy and Hal and yourself as being heroes of mine. And so, you know, to win the race and once you fall into the community, once you start just putting these amazing life experiences and these achievements on your trophy shelf and into your memory bank, it becomes a really addictive thing. And it quickly became just a, an obsession for me and a lifestyle that I cherished. And then slowly over time, I think I got into it at an advantageous moment in the history of the sport because then my career 
really sort of grew in lockstep with the growth and trajectory of the sport itself. And so it's uh, been a wonderful, you know, 12, 13 year ride at this point. And I do recall feeling like a young gun for many years. And now it's funny to feel like the grizzled veteran in a sea of new upcoming and much more talented young guns in the sport right now. But uh, you may, you 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 mentioned lacrosse, though. Fun fact, uh, you know, three of the four faces on the Mount Rushmore of ultra running lacrosse players are Michael Wardian, Dylan Bowman and myself. I mean, we've got to find a fourth one. But uh, I, I know I know that at least the three of us have, still have lacrosse sticks kicking around in our closets. Patty O'Leary is um, also a player. He oh, played for okay, that's good. All right, good. <laughs> that's good to know. I, I can I can see Patty. Uh, he's probably an attackman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, the other, you know, I didn't. I have to admit, I didn't notice you very much in uh, at Silver Rush or Leadville, but I did very much the following year. Um, mutual friend of ours, and more in my generation than yours is um, a great runner named Rod Bean. And Rod um, has multiple 100-mile finishes as a, as a business owner up in Bend, Oregon. And he, he went to the uh, San Diego 100 in 2011, you know, fully expecting to win. And uh, you crushed his butt. And, <laughs> and I remember him, uh, you know, emailing me after and like, you, this guy, Dylan Bowman, he's incredible. I mean, he, I was so <laughs> fit for this thing. And, 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 you know, it was, it was a San Diego has always been a great race. It's kind of an early season. It can be hot. It's, uh, it's well organized. It can be, but like, when Rod said that, and it was, you know, you're still a young gun. You're 25 at this point. It's like, okay, I got I to gotta check this guy out. You yeah. remember that race, San Diego? Yeah, yeah. That was my first 100-mile victory. And it's funny, in addition to Rod Bean, who was also, you know, a hero of mine and one of those early influences and somebody who's become a friend, in addition to him and the friendship that I've sort of been able to develop with him, I also met Yassine Daboon at that race, the 2011 San Diego 100 and also Topher Gaylord, uh, who has become like a really, truly dear friend of mine. One of the, you know, top five people who I respect most in the world, really. And, uh, you know, all three of those relationships were born out of uh, my first 100 mile victory at the San Diego 100 in 2011. And you'll appreciate this, Andy. The reason I went to that race is because I didn't get into Western states, right? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> it, it was like two weeks before Western states. And I was obsessed with, you know, having my opportunity to run Western states for the first time. I eventually got around to doing that the following year in 2012. So the way it all works out, like it's, it makes perfect sense in retrospect, you know, to go to San Diego that year to win the race, to develop these new relationships, to gain experience in the sport, and then take that to the next chapter of my career, which was kind of devoted towards Western States. Again, it's just a lot of great memories. I I would want to point something out because I remember we were on a little shakeout run at San Francisco North Face race, uh, I don't know, eight, seven, eight years ago. And I commented to you about being 
uh, somewhat of an exception at the time in really picking your spots and racing, you know, mm-hmm. just three or four races a year. In 2011, you didn't that didn't do that because yeah. two year two months two months later, you you were back at Leadville, uh, had a really good Leadville, got second, mm-hmm. um, but it was just two months after San Diego, yeah. uh, and maybe you learned a thing or two from that. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was just thinking about this because I was looking at Annie Hughes, who's done so much amazing things. And of course, she represents this new age of young guns in trail and ultra running. And she's probably already done a dozen hundred mile plus races in her career. I think I've done 13 in my career so far. And I've been in the game for 13 years, right? So I think I have done a good job of moderating my racing volume. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've been able to have longevity and for the most part, keep control of my health throughout my career. Um, But I wouldn't necessarily point to San Diego and Leadville, that double as being a learning moment for me because both races went well. And I think it was before I was really approaching my training in a more professional way. And we'll get around to talking about that, I'm sure, because Jason Coop kind of brought that into my life. So I wasn't really training all that much still at that time. And I was still skiing all winter long because I was living in Aspen in those years. So it, it, that nece- that wasn't necessarily a moment where I stepped over the line. I probably have done that a couple of times, but never in a overly dramatic or dangerous way. Uh, You and I both know that we've seen a lot of folks, especially from my generation, suffer from overtraining, overracing. I've been able to avoid that for the most part. But yeah, I I definitely did learn early that I needed to take a moderate approach to my training volume. And for the most part, I've stayed disciplined with that throughout my career. Yeah. And for those of you who are wondering when we're going to start talking about Coop, you know, it's his podcast. We'll get to him eventually. (laughs) Uh, But we got more important things to talk about. So for those of you who always you like just block out anytime AJW talks about Western States, you can pause about for the next 10 minutes of the podcast. But for those of you who love hearing about (laughs) Western States, here we go. Because Dylan showed up in 2012 and ran it again in 2013 and again in 2014 and went from seventh place to fifth place to third place. Uh, Kind of a scenario, uh, uh, interestingly enough, that sort of mirrors a little bit of my trajectory in the sport a a decade earlier, a a, a very different competitive environment a decade earlier, but but nonetheless, a a sort of a a steady build up through um, the standings at Western States and you know, your third place was, you know, well under 16 hours and on a, on a challenging day in 2014. But I'd like to, I'd like to zoom out, ask you to zoom out looking over that three year period, mm-hmm. um, 2012. So let's call it Debo's Western States era. I yep. still want you to go. I still want you to go back there one of these days. I know you're on the board now and there's complications around that, but that three year period combined with very good runs, at what was a wonderful annual gathering in San Francisco at the North Face 50. Yep. Now, that three-year run from age 26 to 28, you'd been, you, you know, the, the car had been driven off the lot, yep. you know, from with those Leadvilles and the San Diegos, and um, and yet you were young enough and enthusiastic enough. You had kind of learned, you had kind of gotten some chops. I mean, that was an impressive three years of Western States running. 
Yeah. Um, what what role did you know, that that annual trip to uh, Olympic Valley play in your overall training? And and as you look back on it now, again, almost ten years ago, yep. um, what role has it played as you you know as your careers moved on, spent a lot more time in Europe, and and other things we're going to talk about later? Yeah, it was an Im- immensely special time in my life and in my career. And I have similar feelings about the race as you do, Andy. I know few people are as passionate about Western Western States as you, and you've been around the race for much longer than I have, but I've been around it now since my first race in 2012. So this year was my 10th anniversary of being around the race. And I've been lucky to now approach it as an athlete, as, you know, as a runner, as a crew member, as a pacer, as just a simple spectator, and now as a board member, and as somebody who helps to lead the uh, race day commentary and analysis team uh, that the race has invested heavily in. It's been a great journey for me, and I am just proud to have been involved, really. It's been an absolute honor. To go back to my three years running the race, you'll also remember, Andy, that I had a fourth year where I dropped out at Michigan Bluff. So I'll give you kind of the whole arc of that story. In 2012... Uh, let, let, Let the record show... Dylan brought that up, not me. Yeah. <laughs> so I started four years in a row, 2012 to 2015. <clears throat> in 2012, like you said, I was 25 years old. I had just won the Leona Divide 50 miler. And that was my first win on what was then the Montreal Ultra Cup, which you'll remember now a Western States golden ticket race, which was a pivotal huge moment in my life honestly andy to win that race it was against many of the sort of name brand athletes in the sport at the time i never pictured myself winning it and so also it was six weeks before western states was to occur and so i then went into western states with the mindset of i'm going for this one i just won leona divide you know who knows this may be my only opportunity here at western states i'm going to put my nose in this fight and try to win this race and so i ran in the in and with the lead with many of my heroes that day and it still gives me goosebumps to remember of course this is the year that timothy olson broke the course record, ran under 15 hours for the first time. So I ran with him, Nick Clark, Dave Mackey, Mike Wolf, Ryan Sands, Zeke Tiernan. You know, these are like my heroes. And uh, I exploded, of course, taking the strategy of I'm going for it. I exploded on Cal Street. I ended up, you know, sort of suffering it in for, you know, still a fast time because it was a really cool day. I ran just over 16 hours, but certainly was not happy with the performance, but happy to have been able to punch my ticket back to the race the following year. Sort of similar the next year, I had a solid day. I raced with a little bit more composure, more strategy, but still had like a three or four hour low point on Cal Street and, you know, in the final miles towards ALT that made my performance something that was solid fifth place, but not my best, not my potential. The following year, 2014, I had a really solid day. I finished third place behind Rob Crar and Seth Swanson 
who are both great friends and people who I look up to immensely in the sport. And I felt like, okay, that was as well as I could have done that day. It still wasn't perfect, but I left satisfied, happy with a podium performance at UTMB, one of my life and career highlights. I should have walked away that year because I had already devoted three years of my life to the event. And I finally had a race that I was really happy with. And instead, I I thought seventh, fifth, third, you know, this next year, (laughs) the pattern could continue and I could secure myself a Cougar trophy. And, uh, you know, I, I... this is actually maybe something we could expand on as we start to move towards the coop conversation too. But uh, looking back now, I, I know I had an intuition at the time that it just wasn't, I, my head wasn't in it in the same way. My heart wasn't in it in the same way. And um, I had also had some health issues in the spring. I had a heat stroke in the spring that was actually like pretty scary and probably should have given me, um, you know, the, advance warning not to start what is obviously one of the hottest races in the world. Uh, so things went sideways very early in that race. I ended up suffering my way to Michigan bluff and pulled the plug there. And it was the first DNF in my career, Andy. And this is after probably 40 or 50 races. And I know you're, uh, you're still, you know, going without a DNF, but I still consider that my only DNF in my career. And, um, that is something that I'm proud of. And also like it, it it was one of those moments where the universe really taught me a lesson. Cause I think I had a smugness about like, Oh, whatever, I'm going to finish no matter what, whatever. And it just, it wasn't going to happen that day. And I bailed and uh, I haven't been back as a racer since. And I, again, I love the race dearly. Um, I love my new role and I'm not necessarily itching to step back on the start line. I very much enjoy being a spectator and a fan, uh, an admirer of the event. And, uh, but at the same time, yeah, I, I would like to eventually get back around to it. Um, but it's hard to say when that's going to be, but yeah, that's my history with the event. A lot of, again, a lot of just amazing memories throughout the last 10 years and all those different, uh, ways in which I've interacted with the event. I remember speaking about moving on from from being a racer there to having a role in the race that doesn't involve running it. My first year of not running it, which was 2015, because Craig Thornley told me after I got my 10th finish that I was not allowed to ever run the race again. I was standing at Forest Hill um, watching people go through, and there was Tim Tweetmeyer, and we saw one runner come through that looked particularly in trouble, and he turned to me and said, Andy, aren't you glad we don't have to run this anymore? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was such a good feeling. I have but, that um, feeling every year, too. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. especially like, when you... Gosh, when you this is so hard. <laughs> but but the, the DNF, I'm not going to let that go. So I, I, one of the things, every time I talk to someone about a DNF, I want to know... Uh, you the the record shows <clears throat> the record shows you dnf'd at michigan bluff yep but where did you really dnf before the start did you dnf when you had the heat stroke a couple months earlier like what was the anatomy of the dnf yeah so like i said my head and heart wasn't in the training in the way that it had been in the three years leading up to western states i think part of that had to do with the fact that i was finally satisfied with the race that i had had in 
2014. And it would have been a perfect opportunity for me to set my sights on other goals. But as you know, when you get to wear one of those, especially like an M3 bib, it's really tempting to come back and pin that bib on and do battle again on that course. So that's one thing that I would flag is just like really listening to that intuition about what you're motivated to do. And that year, I don't think I was truly motivated for that race. I it would actually funny enough, it was one of the best years of my career, even with that DNF, like I won Terrawera early in that spring. And then I won the North face, uh, what is now ultra trail Australia in May. And then I came back and finished second at TNF 50 in the fall slash winter. So it was like a really solid racing season for me, but with that big disappointment in the middle of the year. The other thing that um, I remember is that uh, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday before the race, race week, uh, I had dinner in the same restaurant as uh, Ryan Sands and Francois Den. And Ryan Sands was then a race or a Friday scratch because he had gotten food poisoning. And right. Francois Den had also told me afterwards that he was sick throughout the entire event. He ended up finishing 11th, I think that day, one of the few blemishes on his entire, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, resume. And, uh, and I was feeling actually very ill in the, the 24 hours before the race. I attributed it to being nervous, which I usually never am. But part of me thinks that in the back of my head, there's like a, a voice that says that I was compromised in some way, uh, like uh, physically going into it, just like with my health and my guts and things like that. But um, yeah, more, more than anything, it was just like when things spiraled out of control, I didn't have what it took to regain control and get to the finish line. It was like my body was giving me a fairly clear signal and uh, it, I sat in Michigan Bluff for like two hours before they cut my my wristband. And ultimately, I don't regret it. It was a good learning experience for me. And and yeah, like I said, like I've, I haven't dropped out of a race since then. And so, um, you know, again, it not to it, the smugness is, I think, what got me. And um, yeah. so I've been I'm trying to I always try and keep that humility and that respect for races and the distance for everything that I approach now. I remember backing up to 2014, your 1536 third place with Rob and Seth in front of you. And by the way, Seth, perhaps the most underrated American ultra runner of the love the last two decades, just an incredible runner. I remember seeing you, first of all, I finished, you know, four hours after you did and you were still hanging around. And I remember seeing you and seeing the smile on your face and the look in your eye and uh, if 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 uh, an outside observer seeing us have that exchange would have thought you know oh AJW is congratulating Debo on winning the race and it brought me back to when um, when Greg Soderland gave me my uh, buckle uh, after I got second place he's like this is the only second place runner who celebrated more than the first place runner. <laughs> uh, he used to love and embarrassing me about that because, you know, I did. And I mean, now we see it all the time. I mean, we see seventh place and 70th place and 170th place celebrating like they run, won the race. But but you really had a, if I look back on it, a kind of a contentedness about you with that 2014 finish and, and giving it a shot in 2015 and going for it. You know, there, there, there was uh, – because you had you had really lived through the the transition of 
Western states being a medium-sized race, you know, where maybe one person or two people or five people went under 16 hours to, you know, the top 10 going under 16 hours to, you know, even more than that now. So it was, uh, it was kind of lightning in a bottle moment. And, uh, and I think you, uh, you handled the lightning well. Yeah. Um, so then when did Coop come along? Um, you know, and, and just to, just to put a little, I interviewed another of Coop's longtime athletes, um, last week, Casey Lichtai, and, and she got the Coop referral way back in 2013 from a, a mutual friend of ours, Scott Jaime, a 10 time hard rock finisher, a Colorado guy. And, uh, Coop wasn't really like as hardcore coaching as he is now, but you know, he yeah. was, he was around. And so when did Coop enter the picture in your, um, life? Yeah. So also in 2013 and at a special and and opportune moment. So we're coming up on our 10 year anniversary working together, which is crazy to think about. But in 2013, I went out to UTMB for the first time. So August, 2013, and it was my first international race. I traveled alone and I was going to be there for three weeks. So for like two and a half weeks before the race, And on my first run, the first day I was there in Chamonix, I sprained my ankle in like a heinous way, like third degree sprain, tore all the ligaments in my right ankle and was completely devastated. Ultimately, obviously could not start the race. So I spent three weeks in Chamonix just kind of moping and going to the bars and drinking beer and just like being sad. But I had the amazing opportunity that year to hang out with Frosty, Anna Frost, and Joe Grant and ride around as they crewed for Anton Krupichka. He ultimately DNF'd that year at Trient. But it was an amazing learning experience for me. I had a front row seat to see Rory Bozio run one of the most phenomenal races in ultra running history. Uh, And then I got to see the the lead men's pack and acknowledged to myself that I was not ready for that event no matter what and that the fact that I was injured was potentially a blessing because the course would have absolutely mauled me and it was in that moment where I realized I need help you know I came from a lacrosse background I had no idea what the hell I was doing but I knew I wanted to race with those guys like I wanted to be in that fight and I knew at the time that Coop had started to coach Dakota Jones, who's two or three years younger than me, but who is a person who I've always looked up to as an athlete. And as you know, Andy, he's always been sort of wise beyond his years. And Dakota was sort of like the first quote unquote pro who had engaged a coach, at least in my awareness. And so Coop was really like the only coach who I even knew existed. And I knew him loosely. In fact, we had a funny and special interaction that we both kind of still talk about to this day in 2012, he was running Nick Clark's race in Fort Collins, the quad rock 50 miler on the same day that Dakota Jones beat Killian Jornet at Transvolcania. I was there <laughs> helping Nick uh, volunteering at quad rock and got to tell Coop that Dakota had just beat Killian. And so this is before Coop and I had really started our coach-athlete relationship. But anyway, going back to my UTMB situation, when I got back to the United States, I sent a note to Coop and said, hey, 
I'd really like to to work with you if you're open to helping guide me. And uh, he was gracious enough to take on that burden, take on that responsibility. And is because my ankle was so injured, the first thing we did together was starting doing workouts on the bicycle of all things, which is kind of funny to remember, especially given the fact of where our relationship has come to now and, you know, just all the things that we've done in the last 10 years. The fact that it started doing tempo and VO2 max intervals on a bicycle is just kind of hilarious. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, so once I was healthy enough, you know, to start running again, he totally transformed my training. I started doing less volume in my training than I had been doing, but with far more intensity and much more specificity, much more intentionality, a lot more rest and recovery. And he's a genius. And I attribute uh, you know, so much of my career to his guidance and leadership, and I'm immensely grateful for it. I've had a, a, a small digression because my first meeting with Coop was of all places at Leadville in 2009, so the year before you ran it for the first time. And if you, if if uh, inquiring minds want to check out the race results from that year, eighth place Jason Coop. Ninth place, Andy Jones Wilkins. Tenth place, Brian Powell. Yep, it's true. All just squeaking under uh, 20 hours. But, uh, but, but, <laughs> but I remember seeing Coop's light up the boulevard and being like, nope, not going to get him. Not going to get him. I'm going to have to run this whole thing and that's not going to happen. Um, so, okay. So, so he, he took you on. This is very good because he, so he was there for, he was there for part of the Western States journey, the the 14 and the 15. Um, post 15, so post Western States DNF, yep. there's a there's there's a notable there's a notable shift in your resume towards international racing, not mm-hmm. exclusive, not exclusively, but but it was also where you know many North American runners were heading over to Europe a lot more frequently and a lot for a lot larger races. Mm-hmm. Um, was 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 Coop part of that, or was that something you were doing, and and Coop was along for the ride? He was definitely uh, what what Coop always has emphasized, and especially in those early years for me, was just gain experience, go race good guys on big stages and gain experience. And this is something that I try to pass along to this next generation, as I because I love to sort of in an unofficial capacity help the next generation of pro athletes think about their career and how to manage it and race selection and all those things. And that's one of the things that I try and stress is just gain experience, you know, go have fun, put your nose in it and test yourself. And if you have the appropriate commitment, if you have the right people in your corner, like a great coach, then, you know, you can accomplish amazing things. And of course, also around that time, I was in many cases, and thanks to Jason Coop, I was getting a lot more support from sponsors, which opens up opportunities to do more traveling and racing uh, abroad as well. So, you know, Coop always let me be in the driver's seat about picking my objectives for the year. And he always has encouraged me to listen to my intuition and to my deep motivations and to let those guide the race uh, objectives that I set for myself. And then, you know, he does the hard work of making a mosaic of beautiful training blocks around 
various uh, race objectives that I set uh, to put me in a place to succeed where I, I want to. And then, you know, always course correcting me at moments when I need it along the way. Uh, but the, the shift to the international racing was in some ways influenced by Coop because he always just encouraged me as I was trying to make my way in the sport, make a name for myself in the sport to just gain experience racing against the guys who I wanted to be competing against. And that was, I think, great, great advice. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I will say too, you know, your, your career has not been all rainbows and unicorns and both physically and, and even perhaps psychologically or uh, emotionally. And, and I remember working with an athletic director when I was a, when I was a team sport coach um, in one of my early uh, teaching coaching jobs who said, you know, the, the true measure of a good coach is not how well they do when, when the team's winning all the time, but how they handle when the team's losing. And, yep. and uh, you, you, you know, being a public figure such as you are, you've, you've had not obviously the ankle, the ankle was, a, was a noteworthy moment number one, mm -hmm. but you've had a couple, you know, easily observable sort of hiatuses in your career um, where where there was re relatively lengthy period of time between between races between being on the public stage you know, mm -hmm. the, the the covid one notwithstanding but i'm thinking of you know uh, from fall 16 to spring 17 and again summer 18 all the way almost to summer 19. Mm -hmm. And I know there're probably a lot of stuff going on in your life that is not the scope of this conversation, but I was reminded of this when I when I interviewed Casey uh last week about the way in which Coop was a presence for her when she had surgery and when things when it, when it wasn't about putting cool stuff in the training blocks yep. but it was about yep another rest day or another day going to the gym and foam rolling or another day of bicycling i think the best coaches and you and i are both coaches as well as coop but the best coaches in all in all sports are those that are there when it's bad as well as when it's good. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about some of those down times and, and what Coop has meant to you during those times? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I uh, honestly, I feel like I've been actually fairly lucky with my health as somebody who's been in the sport and racing, you know, at a high level for 13 years. And aside from that acute ankle injury on my right foot, the only other real injury I had was when I broke my left ankle in 2019. <laughs> in 2019. That was easily the lowest moment of my life and in my career. And uh, yeah, it was also as I was, I was think I was 33 at the time. So it really started to crystallize like, hey man, like you, time is of the essence here and you have to, really cherish these years of your quote unquote peak athletic, um, capabilities. Right. And so, um, and Coop was always there for me in terms of just kind of checking in, sending notes and being available to, to chat. And also I think critically, Andy, he was always like a voice of reason to my sometimes stubborn, um, insistence on getting back to it, you know, when I was hurt and trying to like set new goals for myself and trying to put things on the calendar because I was like grasping for continued relevance in the sport. And he would always be a voice of reason about 
you know, let's just focus on where we are now. Let's get yourself healthy. Like it's actually not as bad as you think it is. Like, yeah, it feels terrible, but if you just kind of rest for a little while and you stay diligent with your PT, like you're going to get through this man and then we'll get back to it, but don't rush it. Don't skip this step. And he also, you know, is competent enough to where I recall a few times, like sending him lab results and sending him x-rays and, uh, MRI interpretations or results and, and him being, you know, just like the smart, uh, composed, thoughtful coach that he is of just, you know, telling me, okay, here's the situation. You know, I think this is actually better than it seems and we can get through this and, you know, I'm here for you. And I've always, I've always really, really appreciated that. The other thing that I think is actually relevant going back to our earlier conversation about when I dropped out of Western States, that was a really important moment for Coop and I in our relationship. And it really helped me to understand the importance of communicating with him as a coach and being honest with him about how I was feeling. And, um, you know, the specific example is that, you know, like I said, I had won Tarawera and Ultra Trail Australia in February and May that year. I had also had a really scary heat stroke in, I think it was March that year. And so I had put myself through a bunch leading into Western States. And after Ultra Trail Australia, I had the distinct feeling of just like, training is not fun. This feels really hard. Like I'm not motivated and my body is just, it's not coming to me. The training is not clicking. And I never told Coop that I all, I kept it inside and thought, you know, this is Western States training. It's the last six weeks. Like it's supposed to suck. This is supposed to be hard. You got to get through it. Just be tough. And I showed up and I was flat and I DNF my first DNF at, uh, a competitive race. And of course it was the, the biggest goal of my season. So it was highly disappointing. But again, with every big disappointment, you get a great opportunity to learn. And so the big lesson there for us and for me in particular was like, you got to tell your coach how you're feeling, man. Like mm-hmm. I could have easily said, Hey, this does not feel good. Like this is not feeling right. My intuition says this is wrong. And either, totally back off the training, change the stimulus, you know, bail on Western States altogether and focus on something else and get yourself back to being fit, fresh and motivated that none of those things I did. Um, and so that was a really valuable learning experience for me. And, uh, something that Coop and I still talk about to this day was just sort of like how pivotal of a moment that was in terms of just our coach athlete relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, Debo, that you mentioned that. I, I'm, as I think listeners to the podcast know, I'm, I'm one of about a, a dozen coaches at, at CTS, which is where Co- Coop coaches and is kind of the, the, the grand poobah of coaches we have. And, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of the elder statesman and the, and the resident curmudgeon on the, in the group as a role that I, that I cherish. But I also think it's an important role because, you know, Coop is, and I think you, the, your comments here are, are valuable. Coop is an extremely smart guy. I mean, he's going to analyze those MRI results and x-rays and and come uh, with a conclusion that will most likely be the, the best course of action. But he also is not so prideful that he is afraid to admit he's wrong. 
You know, one of the you, you one might think a coach as successful as Coop would be like a my way or the highway coach. Uh, and, and he's not. And, and I, I see it happen in our continuing ads uh, at CTS where I or one of the other coaches, typically one of the more experienced coaches, will, will push back a little bit on, on something where maybe he's going maybe a little bit too far down the science side. And I mean, as you might expect, he goes down the science side. I tend to jump over to the art side, right? Yep. The art and the science <laughs> of it. I mean, that's, I, I don't, I don't disregard the science by any means, but yep. I'm a little bit more touchy feely than most when it comes to these kinds of things. And, and sometimes it bugs Coop, you know, his Texas background and all of that. But other times he sort of gets it and he's open to it and so forth. And so yep. I think for an athlete such as yourself, I mean, yes, it was probably a mistake to just shut up and like bite the bullet and not tell him anything. But there was also something where it's like, well, this is Coop. I've just got to keep my nose to the grindstone and, and gut it out. I suspect you wouldn't do that now. So is there a time if you if you think of that moving forward? You've had great successes since then. A pod, you know, top yep. ten at at uh, UTMB, a sec, an extraordinary second place at Hard Rock. Have you pushed back with him at all? I mean, yes, he, a- you've got to after ten years. You've got to talk. Tell a little bit. Tell the audience a little bit because so everybody is- listening to this cod podcast knows Coop knows all. So tell this- me some examples of pushing back. This is a great example of how we learned from that anecdote of. Western States 2015. In 2018, I started the year again winning Tarawera. And then I did a project with Red Bull on the lost coast of Northern California that was an 11 hour day. And then in April, I was due to run Ultra Trail Mount Fuji in Japan. And as we were in the critical crux last few weeks leading up to UTMF, Coop had me on my schedule doing something like a back-to-back five-hour, five-hour Saturday, Sunday weekend. So high volume, just, you know, classic endurance back-to-back days to just kind of finish the work, finish the training block uh, for, you know, 100-mile specificity. I was feeling pretty tired uh, after Terrawera where I had won and I knew I was fit and had all that sort of like good energy and confidence from winning a big race like that. And then I had another 11 hour day under my belt with the Lost Coast. And my intuition told me I don't need these two five hour runs. I feel tired. This feels like too much to me. And I told Jason Coop that and we changed the training for that week and changed it dramatically. I think it was something like we did 90 minutes on Saturday with a little bit of intensity and maybe like two or two and a half hours on Sunday. So we slashed my weekly volume that week by like 20 or 25%, right? And then I went to UTMF and I had the race of my career catching Pau Capel with 5K to go to win in what was easily the b- most the best executed 100 mile race of my career to that point you know the hu- the hard rock in 2021 is probably up there in terms of one of my best performances but the 2018 UTMF is still a race that I look back at with just in- immense pride and i think the key to that preparation was not overstepping in training leading up to the race. I left that effort for race day, which I think is critical and not necessarily easy for professional athletes to 
achieve consistently is to have the their day when it matters most. That day I was able to do that. And I think it was because I had the confidence in myself to know, no, your fitness is there. You won Terrawera. Your endurance is there. You had this an, a, another 11 hour day on the Lost Coast. Like you're ready for the 100 mile race. You don't need f- two more five hour runs back to back. And it was kudos to Coop who, you know, it trusted my intuition. He didn't push back whatsoever. He said, all right, sounds good. Let's switch it up. Here's your new training. And I, you know, had a great weekend that weekend, low volume, went into the taper and arrived in Japan feeling ready to absolutely swing for the fences. So I think that's a great example of what you're getting at. Yeah. And one of the things I've seen in an evolution with Coop, you know, I've been with CTS now seven years and it's not so much the art and science, but a little bit of it is, is he's definitely, and I, I, I suspect you've experienced this. He's come around a little bit on the importance of mental training on the importance of, um, I remember we had a, we had a Memorial Day camp in Colorado Springs a few years back. And, and he asked at the end of the camp, he asked us all to provide a little tidbit on, you know, the one piece of advice you'd give ultra runners. And I just came up with, you know, devote twice as much time to mental training as physical training. And I think it stuck with Coop that the, the notion, I mean, when you see Katie Scheid's race this year at, um, at UTMB, a lot of that was between the ears. I think a lot of Abby Hall's success with uh, with Coop has been, but obviously they're both really, really talented athletes, but a lot of it's between the ears. Certainly with Casey, you know, coming back from multiple injuries, first winning uh, Western States and then gutting it out last year. And I suspect, am I right? I, I don't want to push here, but was part of Hard Rock and the success of 2021 after so many years of trying to get in, was it, was there a piece of that that was mental for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always recognized the importance of the mental side of the sport. And it's uh, always, and this is something I've talked about many times and that I also try and stress to the next generation is that it's never necessarily when I've been training the hardest and I'm at, theoretically at my fittest when I have my best performances. It's when I feel happy, healthy, centered, present, and grateful to be on the start line. And so, and this is something Coop and I have always talked about too. And the way I like to articulate it is that I I like to train for a state of mind rather than a state of fitness. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if I can controlling the variables in my life that help me to feel happy, centered and grateful, that also makes me a better athlete and always keeping that as a high priority. Of course, you still have to get the work done. You still have to grind through the tough interval sessions. You still got to get out the door for those six, seven hour endurance runs when you're feeling pretty tired. Uh, And there's a time and a place for that. But, you know, the way that we truly have those breakthrough experiences is when we do have the mental side of things dialed as well. And I think Katie Shadia is a good example of that. I had her on my podcast recently and we talked about it. I asked her if she had had sort of an intuition that she was ready for that type of day. And she said that she and Coop had talked about it before the race. And she made a point to tell him, I'm feeling better than I ever have right now. And so (laughs) no matter what happens, like we're doing something right. And of course she was able to win UTMB and uh, bring home one of those coveted uh, championships that all professional trail runners only dream about. And uh, yeah, I think uh, the mental side of things uh, really helped her to, to achieve that. 
That's great. Well, I'm gonna we're gonna wrap up here, but before we go, I some a little bit fun. Um, you know, you and I are we're not we're not subtle in in talking about how uh, we love all sports. I mean, we're obviously we're into trail running and endurance sports, but you and I are both you know ESPN junkies and sport. You know, you know, and 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 by the way, Coop is a little bit too. Unfortunately, being from Texas, he's a Dallas Cowboys fan. Yeah, which is which is something that we just have to put up with. But I think one of the things, and maybe you guys have talked about this too, is we talk. Coop and I talk a fair bit about coaches from other disciplines, particularly uh, team team sport coaches, and uh, that that we might look up to or that we might attempt to emulate. I mean, it's it's easy to emulate somebody who coaches, you know, cross country at a, you know, Val and Hannah or Mark Wetmore or something. But sometimes I like to play the game of a, of a coach. I'm going to ask you Debo and I'll, a coach from outside running from outside, um, even any individual, let's limit it to team sports, a team sport coach that kind of has what it, that maybe has that similar it that Coop has, or um, or has that way about them that gets the most out of their athletes? Because ultimately, that's what we want we want to do as coaches. We want to get the most out of our athletes on any given day. And I would argue that Coop does that better than most. But on the team sport side, can you think of a coach or two, current or retired, that might fit that mold? This is such a great question, Andy. So I'm going to give you, give you a couple. Um, and if you steal mine, I'm going to really have to go digging. Like, so. can, I, can, I guess, <laughs> can I guess yours? Can I, can I guess who you're going to say? Are you going to no, say Lars? No, I'm, you gonna hey, say I'm Lars? the host. <laughs> Are you going to say Lars Tiffany from the University of Virginia men's lacrosse team? <laughs> I'm um, not. I, I should, yeah. but I'm not. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, so this is a really good question, and I wish I had a chance to really think deeply about it. A couple come to mind, and you know, I I think I've always resonated with people who are kind of players coaches, you know, who make their players feel like they're part of something, and instead of making them feel like they're obligated to perform because otherwise they're a disappointment, instead making them feel excited to perform because they're performing for their brothers on the field. And, you know, I, I've always admired Mike Tomlin. I love his attitude. He's of course the Pittsburgh Steelers head coach and one of the longest tenured head coaches in the league at this time, I think a two time Super Bowl champion. Uh, so Mike Tomlin is, is one of those guys. And then from the older school, uh, Pete Carroll also kind of represents that of being kind of like a, a player's coach. Of course, he was at the university of Southern California when they had, Reggie Bush and Matt Leinart and Lendale White, and they were such an exciting team. And then, of course, he's been a great coach for uh, the Seattle Seahawks for a long time. So those are two answers. And then Lars Tiffany from the University of Virginia men's lacrosse team is good. John Tillman from the University of Maryland men's lacrosse team. Those guys are also absolute studs, and they've done amazing things for their program. So there, there's four for you. Nice, nice. Well, I had I had Pete Carroll also. I mean, the guy has it's hard to believe he's 70 with his level of enthusiasm. Um, but I yeah, I I have to go with Coach K. 
Um, I have to go with Coach K and how well he knew his players, how he followed them far into the future. I mean, when he retired and the, the outpouring of love and respect for Coach K and how he knew their, you know, you know, sent them notes when their kids, when they had children themselves and so forth. He, he was the ultimate human connector. Uh, of a coach. I, I felt that, that Coach K just understood his players, knew where they were coming from, knew what he wanted to get out of them and, and, and made them not only, it's, it's cliche, but not only better, uh, better players, but, but better people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dive into, to college lacrosse. I, I mean, uh, Petramala has always been a guy I've liked. He's old school. I mean, he, he, he was in the same generation as I was and kind of, you know, just a, a headbanger. He's a little old school, but, you know, I think he's, he, he knows what he's doing. Um, but I also they like, say they I, say he's the best player coach combo in lacrosse history because he also he won a national championship as a player and as a coach at Johns Hopkins. Well, and sometimes you get the feeling he could still like lace him up and get out there if he had to, you know, <laughs> like like if he really had to, he would. And then you know I've got to because I'm because I'm an educator and I come from a long line of educators. The sort of the the most cerebral coach. With the exception of John Wood, and I'm not going to, we're not going to include John Wood. Was was uh, is Tony Larusa? I mean, whatever team Tony Larusa went to, you know, his best years were with the Cardinals. But I go back to Tony Larusa and the A's. You know, the way no no detail, no stone was unturned uh, with Tony Larusa. So um, those coach, I mean, I, you can kind of tell where I'm going with Coach K and Tony Larusa and Petromala. You know, that's sort of my my sort of in, inclination. But um, maybe. Maybe what we'll do, Debo, is when uh, when Coop gets back from his break, we'll we'll have to maybe get his choices and have yeah. him weigh in. I know I know he has his opinions, and we we might have to not allow him to name any coaches from Texas. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I but have we'll one have more. I have one more for you that's off the uh, off the beaten path that I think maybe our listeners will find fun and entertaining, and maybe send them down a rabbit hole. Have you gotten into the Formula One thing on Netflix, Andy? You know, I've only recently because my middle son Logan, when that Dutch guy, you know, won the championship yeah. at the end of last year, and yep. yeah, everyone went crazy on it. He turned yeah. me on to that, so, so I, I haven't gone. I haven't gone completely down that rabbit hole, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm on my way. I just listened to a podcast with Christian Horner, who's the team principal for the Red Bull Racing team, who is you could call the coach of. Uh, Max Verstappen's team, right? And yeah, it was yeah. fascinating to hear him talk about his process of leading that team throughout the course of the last, I think it's been 12 years or something, coming from being a backwater team that, you know, didn't really have any place competing against Ferrari and McLaren and then coming through and winning four championships and then going into obscurity for another few years and now coming back and winning last year. And it looks like they're going to win again this year it's uh it's a it was a really good podcast so christian horner was a, another good one that came to mind there i'll have to look that up i'll make sure i'll make sure mike gets that into the into the notes from the episode <laughs> so um so Debo, this has just been great i want to uh, i want to thank you for taking the time i know i want to thank coop for for handing over the controls uh, this has been a lot of fun. I want to I want to wish you and uh, Harmony great success as you 
continue down the uh, down the road of parenthood, as I've said to you before, as a as a father of three uh, grown sons, uh, it goes fast. I know it doesn't feel like it now when you're up at three in the morning doing feedings and stuff, but it it goes fast, and you gotta you gotta savor it, and you gotta get your runs in when you can. So uh, keep those <laughs> keep keep those baby jogger tires pumped up. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andy. Super fun to chat with you. Awesome. All right, man. And I hope to see you sometime soon. Well, that was fun. Thank you all very much for listening to that great interview with Dylan Bowman. Hard to believe. uh, Guy still in his 30s, been around the sport so long and has so many great stories and has been impacting the sport in so many ways for so many years. And, And how great to hear hear his stories of his experiences working with Coop, um, like Casey uh, last week. Uh, just, uh, just a remarkable example of, um, of the coach-athlete relationship and particularly how important it is as it, as it is advances uh, through the years. So thanks again for listening, and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time on the Coopcast.